From the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge. I'm your host, Ted Fox. The idea behind this show is pretty simple. A university campus is a destination for all kinds of interesting people, representing all kinds of research specialties and fields of expertise. So why not invite some of these folks out to brunch? Yes, I said brunch, where we'll have an informal conversation about their work, and then I'll turn those brunches into a podcast. It's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. With the Side of Knowledge is supported by Soren's Restaurant inside Notre Dame's Morris Inn, which serves breakfast and lunch seven days a week and dinner Tuesday through Saturday. If you see us recording, feel free to stop by and say hi, preferably not when we're chewing. Also, this is the last episode of Season 2, but we're not going away during the break. If you follow at with a side of pod on Twitter, you'll see we just launched a new feature called We Heart Podcasts, where Notre Dame faculty members and others offer quick recommendations of shows they love. You can play them right from Twitter with nothing to download. Our first guest there is economist Chloe Gibbs, and we hope you'll check it out. As for Season 3 of this podcast, look for us to be back in late July or early August. And now, on with the show. Brian Frameau is the creator of the eponymously named Frameau Efficiency Index, or FEI, a college football rating system based on opponent-adjusted possession efficiency. Don't worry, we start out by unpacking what that means. Since diving into the world of football analytics back in the early 2000s, we cover that origin story as well, he has contributed work to Football Outsiders, Blue and Gold Illustrated, The Athletic, ESPN.com, and ESPN the Magazine. Brian and I have known each other almost as long, and I have always enjoyed talking with him about things like how we can more precisely measure a college football team's strength of schedule, and what technically constitutes garbage time. If you like sports, math and statistics, and or simply listening to someone thoughtfully dig into widespread assumptions, I think you'll enjoy listening to him too. Brian Fermo, welcome to With a Side of Knowledge. Ted, thank you very much. I'm so excited for this. This is great. Brian and I have, have known each other for a long time, and as I like to joke going into this, we've probably had some version of this conversation about 50 times in your kitchen, so... <laughs> We have rehearsed and rehearsed. I hope I hope we I hope we nail it today. That's right. <laughs> so, I wanted to start maybe with kind of a primer on the Fermo Efficiency Index, which is a college football rating system based on opponent-adjusted possession efficiency. So, before we talk about what that means and is trying to get at, I'm wondering if we could talk about a few of the component statistics you calculate to arrive at a team's overall ranking. Um, one of those is adjusted possession advantage. What is adjusted possession advantage? <laughs> this is the perfect medium to try to <laughs> try to explain something that is formulaic, right? <laughs> That's it's, right. I need a spreadsheet in front of me and some visual uh, cues to probably do this justice. But the idea of pretty much all of the work I do with college football stats is to glean more information than the basic box score offers and to then process it in a way that helps make a little bit more sense about what just happened. So as far as adjusted possession advantage is concerned, it the offense's goal when they have the ball is to score, primarily to score via put in the end zone, get a touchdown. 
Um, the defense's goal is to stop them from scoring. That's, that's the essential game that's being played in, in American football. And at the end of the day, we just add up the points that have been scored by each team, and, and, and one team is on top. But what's happening in terms of the sequences of how teams score, the offense takes possession, works with the ball, either scores or doesn't, the, the other uh, offense takes the field after. There's a, there's a push and pull of, of possessions that uh, and the field position that is traded on and off plays into how valuable those contributions by the offense are. It's much more difficult to score on offense when you're pinned at your own one-yard line and have to drive the length of the field than it is when you recover a turnover in opponent territory and, and only have to move a few yards to, to put points on the board. So that adjustment starts with that field position component. How much work and how much effort and how challenging was it to produce on a given possession? The other adjustment that's made is how strong was the opponent that you faced. A team that is exceptional on offense playing a team that is exceptional on defense or, or poor on defense is going to have a much easier time uh, scoring than one that is more evenly matched. And so when you when you can take some basic evaluations of how good at offense and how uh, good a defense is uh, and sort of process the result, taking that into account, you get a better sense of how strong a given team truly is. If, if you play a lot of poor opponents, your results might look great, but have, have we really revealed how good you are? So that's really how I arrive at that. Yeah. Those, those two key adjustments are based on that field position and the strength of the opponent. And so when you're talking about a possession advantage, it's if the net possession advantage was 2.91 that means on an average possession when you put that offense against the defenses they're playing it's that possession is worth 2.91 yeah that, that, I, I probably we're gonna we're gonna spend the whole time talking about this probably right <laughs> no the idea is is this is exactly what you're getting at right a touchdown is worth six points typically close to, typically an average close to seven points because the extra point afterwards right. is is automatic or nearly automatic uh so let's use seven points as an example an offense scores a touchdown, seven points are recorded. How much of that seven points belongs to the offense's contribution? You know, if they started at midfield, maybe only four points of that of that seven really was the contribution by that by the offense. The other three were either gifted to them by a result of the previous possession that put them in great field po- range, field goal range, or field position range, and um, or some combination of what the defense is is doing that allowed for that extra value to be recorded. So. You're right. When at the at the end result is a more precise number. Not team A is seven points better than team B, but team A might only be two point nine mm-hmm. points better than team B because we're taking into account the the uh, and better evaluating the the, the true values that that, that that the teams are bringing to the table. The, right. The actual performance that's happening in the field, and that—I mean—that is what I'm most curious about when I watch games. I have a very analytical bent as a fan. I, I haven't always had that, but I certainly developed it as I matured. And I'm—I'm I'm very curious to to dig in on that kind of level of detail because it helps me understand what actually happened. Team A beat Team B is is. It's too broad a brush to paint for a game that's much more complex, and so I'm I'm far more interested in trying to identify those kinds of nuance and and that level of detail. One of the other components you talk about is strength of schedule, and we were kind of we were talking about relative strengths there in terms of an individual offense or an individual defense. But I think the I think what you're doing with strength of schedule is interesting because it's not what we typically see thrown out there in terms of a measurement of, of strength of schedule. How do you 
compute your number that you that you call strength of schedule. Yeah. One of the things that I certainly will admit is that there isn't a single definition of it. I mean, I trust my own definition of it for sure, but I, I value the fact that there are many others who do some of the kind of work I do and many others who don't dig into the detail and simply re- lean on the average ranking number of, a, of, the, of your given opponents as somehow being meaningful. Now, it, what I dig in on is... How difficult is it to go undefeated, or how difficult is it to to play a given set of opponents and come away either unscathed or with only one loss, let's say? That is a more refined definition than simply adding up the the relative stre- the, the strengths of your opponents and averaging them. Mm-hmm. Because uh, especially for the top teams, you're not playing an average of your opponents every week. You're playing the individual opponents. So you might play the t- the number two team in the country and the number 130 team in the country, and the average strength of schedule might say you, that's equivalent to yeah. playing two teams ranked 65. Right. Th- that simply isn't true. Right. You, you aren't playing two teams ranked 65. The You have a roughly, if you're the number one team in the country, you might have a roughly 50% chance maybe of winning that game against the top two in the top mm-hmm. two matchup, and you have a 100% chance of winning the other game. And that adds up more to a 75% likelihood of, of winning the two games. If you play two teams ranked 65 and you're the number one team in the country, you're going to win them both mm-hmm. uh, going away. You're going to be resting your starters. Right. You're going to be that much start, uh, stronger than that opponent. So it's really a rec- it's an acknowledgement that measuring strength of schedule and, st- and certainly debating strength of schedule has as much to do with how strong your own team is as it is how strong your opponents are. A team could face the same set of opponents as, uh, as another team, and if they're a strong team, they may be able to handle that set of opponents more easily. And if they're an average team, they might have not an average record, but a very poor record because of the, the, those relative strengths. So I definitely dig in on that as a way to, again, more properly examine the merits of teams. And this really plays into the, the inevitable conversations around who's most deserving of going to the playoff and which teams are... Uh, are better prepared for those top matchups at the end of the year, strength of schedule becomes part of that conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of then going back to talking about opponent-adjusted possession efficiency, what motivated you or why is it that, because I know you started working on this back around 2002, what motivated you to want to look at that metric specifically, at individual possessions? Because that is, again, that's something that I don't know if you're the only person that does that, but that's not how we, you're right that we typically think about games as, oh, there's a final score, it was 49 to 35, and that tells me what I need to know about the competitiveness of the games, but you're further breaking that game down to a micro level of actually looking at possession by possession, and I'm wondering why was that a metric or the metric that you felt was most worthy of the kind of the deep dive exploration that you do with it? Yeah. Well, I could I could tell the, the the story of pain that started yes, I, that started I, this as a as a Notre Dame fan. Uh, I've, I've watched a lot of Notre Dame games over the years, and one in particular in in 2002, uh, I I recognize in in retrospect as sort of what spawned this this level of inquiry. Um, to to briefly summarize, Notre Dame played Boston College. Notre Dame was uh, in 2002. Notre Dame was an undefeated team playing what was presumed to be an inferior opponent, and, and certainly was inferior, maybe not dramatically inferior, but an inferior opponent in Boston College. Notre Dame actually dominated most of the traditional stats in the game, um, 
Boston College, uh, frankly, didn't move the ball across midfield at any point with their offense during the game and won. And I was in the stands that day, and um, I it was it was the day As that was I, I, I was at the same game. <laughs> oh, same we, game. We, we both get to share in that. Uh, we weren't we weren't with one another. We were with that one day. another. Probably but, opposite ends yeah. of the stadium, but um, the uh, the idea that 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 result could happen was um, it had it had a profound impact on me because uh, it. It really challenged me to scrutinize what I thought I knew about this game that I had been watching for all of my life. There were, this was a result that seemed impossible. And I certainly could point to the very obvious uh, statistical factors. There were Notre Dame turned the ball over seven times. But there were other aspects of that game that just uh, I wanted to know more about. I wanted to actually dig in a little bit on what is the value of a turnover. Simply fumbling the ball over is is giving up possession. You Your offense had the ball. Your offense no longer has the ball. But fumbling at different par- portions of the field carries different meaning. Is it more valuable or less valuable to, to fumble in enemy territory? There's a couple of different ways that could be approached. And that game really um, really caused me to think about those kinds of questions and realize, once I began to think about them, that the tools weren't out there to answer those questions. The box score that most are familiar with, outlining the result of a game, gives some basic yardage stats and first down success and certainly the turnover numbers, but doesn't tell uh, a, a clear enough narrative about the elements of the game that really contributed to a result. So I started collecting that data on my own and, and, and kind of rolled up my sleeves and, and did it by hand at, at first. I mean, certainly I was, I was referencing widely available information, play-by-play summaries and that sort of thing, but I was, I was putting that all into a notebook as, as I was processing... Uh, a, an approach to digging in on these numbers, and, and and probably spent more than my more time than I should have with that notebook, uh, and not really thinking of the ways that I could be more efficient myself in in, in turning this into you know using a, the the computer as a processing tool. But, but it, over the next few years, I, I started to develop this mostly for my own interest in my own uh, inquiry, and I, I was also noticing that I was watching the games themselves a little differently over that time. I, instead of groaning at the result of an, of an interception, which I certainly still did, uh, standing in the, in the stands, I was interested in the resulting field position because I knew the value that that might have carried, or I was paying closer attention to the, the numbers of possessions. You, you asked about um, why possessions, and, and to be honest, it was the... It was, it isn't as granular as you can get in football. Certainly, the play, the individual line of scrimmage play on first and ten, or you know, third and two, is a bit more granular than the possession itself that would include those two plays. But I found early on that possessions were something I could easily latch onto and easily collect. I mean, because I was doing it initially by hand, play level detail was going to be too overwhelming. Possessions were were manageable, and I also found that uh, over time, and I still do to this day, that and this is very different than some of the other sports. The most granular, granular you can get in football provides much more noise in the information than, than maybe some other sports. In baseball, you want to drill into the, the details of an at-bat. Um, it's an individual, unique event. There are very few indivi- uh, players involved in, in a given at-bat. Uh, and you can parse that level of detail because... The batter is trying to do something very specific, and the pitcher is trying to do something very specific. In football, on a given play, there are 22 people on the field. Not only do you not know precisely what all of their jobs are supposed to be, based on the play call on offense or the, or the, the play call on defense, 
you have no real way of measuring whether they did that job <laughs> either without much more sophisticated data uh, collection tools. And so I was, I have for many years um, been very resistant to digging in on the play level because the, it seemed a, little, but a lot more nebulous on what I might pull out of that or a lot more noisy maybe information is a better way to put it. Whereas the possession is a little bit more straightforward. It's more like that at bat in that the offense is trying to do one thing, the defense is trying to, to, to stop them. So that's really how I settled on, on possessions and, and you know, 15 years later after really, or more, I guess, after starting that initial work, it, it still provides a lot of like interest to me because there's more to be gleaned from that. I'm going to put this out here now, not for you to answer it right away, but I want to leave it kicking around in the back of your, mm. back of your head. We already ate, so it's <laughs> full stomach, so we should yes. be able to focus. But <laughs> what to you as a lifelong watcher of football has been one of the more counterintuitive conclusions you've drawn as an analyst and yeah. something that would have surprise you so you don't need to answer it right now so just but but i can i think i mean i know yeah. something that comes immediately to yeah. mind is work that i, I still do so I, like i i've said I, I break down the unit contributions the offense and the defense but there's a whole set of contributions that are bucketed into something we call special teams mm-hmm. that includes you know kickoff and kickoff returns and punts and punt returns field goal kicking as a fan the priority on having exceptional special teams play feels significant, right? They, you, you, you're, you're, you're so frustrated when, when something seems to go wrong on one of those kickoff return units or kickoff units. Or you're elated uh, because it's one of the more exciting plays in football when, uh, when your team has a big return, on a, a return for a touchdown. And from an emotional standpoint, from a momentum standpoint that we, that we try to classify things under, it feels hugely significant, those kinds of plays. As an analyst, it is significant in... Those plays certainly are significant in game outcomes. Uh, A a kickoff return can be game-changing in many ways. It is truly insignificant in terms of evaluating how strong a given team is when you lean on those kinds of results because they don't happen with any level of frequency or consistency... Even the teams that do it well, right. they, the best quote-unquote yeah. kickoff, kickoff units in the country will occasionally give up a kickoff return. And it's such an unusual play and such a costly play, certainly in that game outcome. We seem to want to point to that as, well, that's something we need to work on. But, and I don't work with coaching staffs or anything like that, but as a fan, I am always reminded, now that I have this analytical approach, I'm reminded that, that was a fluke. That that truly was a fluke result that, though it plays into the narrative of the game I'm watching, it doesn't play into the narrative of the team I'm watching. And that, that was very much a, a change in my mentality by doing this work because it took uncovering that in the data yeah. to, to really realize that was what was going on. Even though as a and a Notre Dame fan specifically, <laughs> the, the my favorite memories as a youth are... <laughs> Kickoff returns, as an exactly. example, from my you know rocket ish rocket ish exactly, yeah. um, and and to know not that those you know that those plays weren't significant, but to know that those those plays and those events aren't the, the aren't telling the, as much of the truth as we think they are yeah. about what what just happened on the field. Yeah. yeah. One thing I've always enjoyed talking to you about is your concern with garbage time possessions, and I'm going to ask about your actual <laughs> definition of garbage time here in a minute, but. You've wanted to find ways to keep those kind of meaningless throwaway possessions that almost every game 
not all games, but almost every game ends up having them at, at some point. Is that something that's common in the analytics community that people are trying to exclude that? Because it seems like it would be a major point in the favor of math versus human polling. Because, hu- I mean, we always hear about that with, you know, coaches or media members. How many games can you watch, really? And you're looking at a final score and you're forming an opinion based off that. So this would seem like the math would actually, by trying to exclude those things, and I'm wondering how how common of a practice that is in terms of analytics. I think it is those who, again, are like me wanting to scrutinize and, and examine and, and dig in on the data. It, it's becoming, it has become very common. What, what I've found is, as with other things like opponent adjustments, there are many definitions and many different approaches to what garbage time so is. What, what is because I, yeah. I enjoyed this on Twitter this week because <laughs> this year with Merriam-Webster, they added garbage time to the dictionary. Yes, they did. And, and, you, and you quoted and said, this is great, but it's not specific. And it was, <laughs> it was a definition someone like me would give of, like, oh, the game's out of hand and the yeah. team has, yeah. has the ball. So for the purposes of what you do, what, what do you consider garbage time yeah. to be? There isn't a single garbage time possession in a, in a first half as a, as, a, as a basic rule of thumb. So what, what, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm identifying which, which events, in this case possessions, am I excluding from the data set when I'm, when I'm evaluating results. It's actually a bit counterintuitive. You, you do say there must be some math behind it, and there is. Uh, there's, a re- there's mathematical reasons to exclude garbage time. But it also is it's difficult because the amount of data in football is precious. You almost don't want to throw any of it away if you can avoid it. I mean, in baseball, again, as an example, there's 162 games and many, many more played appearances for individual players. In football, the best teams, the, the top teams play in college football specifically play 14 games, 15 games maybe. There's maybe a dozen possessions in a the game. There just are far fewer events. So the idea of excluding or discarding any of them feels like an affront to the data, <laughs> the data set in the first right. place, and so, but but what you do find, and this this really came again from the fan perspective first before I found the numbers to to validate it, was that there are points in games that clearly these two teams are not playing the same game that we saw them play in the first half, and by that I mean starters maybe have been removed from 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 the field and backups are in, in play. Uh, the emotional effort that's put out there, one team might be trying to deliberately run out the clock just right. to get it to the finish line. The other team actually might be happy to do that as well because they're down. Um, <laughs> just to get it over with. Just to get it over with. But when does that flip? So there is a possession, in the way I calculate it, that occurs typically uh, late in the, in the second half, depending on the level of the blowout. It could happen very early in the second half um, if a team is dominating uh, by enough. That after which it is it's effectively mathematic, mathematically impossible for the other team to catch up. Uh, the offense is only going to get a certain number of remaining possessions because of the way the clock will work against them, and they're down by too many points in order to even if they play those possessions perfectly to actually result in a victory. That ultimately is the moment that garbage time kicks in, and according to my uh, my definition. It's it is it is retroactively calculated, mm-hmm. which is uh, a little bit of a cheat, I suppose, because when I am watching a game, I can't necessarily call going, it out. Seven fifty three. I can't. Garbage I can't right. Now. That's true. But, but I have found by and I, I certainly won't. Though Merriam-Webster has a great summary. I, I should I should clarify. <laughs> um, 
Uh, it is not specific enough, at least for, to actually produce the clean data set that I want to now work with. But the, the way I calculate it is, is retroactive. But when I am watching games, I can tell the within, certainly uh, for 90% of the games, I can tell the possession that that begins mm-hmm. because I've now learned... Mm-hmm. By training my own eyes, uh, how many possessions are likely to, to follow? Um, it, because I've just become more attuned to that part of the game. So I do think that, and and it often results in not just our starters being swapped in and out, but also other choices that coaching staffs might make. They are becoming less aggressive in fourth down attempts because they know the result is already in hand. Or they're becoming more conservative because they have such a large lead they want to protect it. So there are a few elements of the game that really kind of you can pick out as being indicative of garbage time, but but I am very precise in defining that way. And the reason I do that is because others define it differently. So when I am producing numbers and sharing them and hopefully teams and fans and, and, and other media might pick up on those numbers... I don't want anyone to challenge something that I'm producing as saying, well, actually they scored seven touchdowns in that game, not five. My numbers are saying they scored five. Well, that's because I have this clean def- or clear definition of garbage time. I'm only counting these results. And, and so it's important for me to put that out there so that there, there isn't a confusion about why my, my numbers might be different. Just like others. you do, as we were talking before we started recording, just like you don't count games against FCS opponents. That's right. the same thing. Those, right. those are, don't go into what you're... And that has as much again. It's 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 a deliberate choice to discard data, which isn't always intuitively uh, the wise thing to do. But it is it is in this in that case, it's discarding data that I know I can't trust, and I can't trust it in the sense of being able to have informed opponent adjustments. We talked about earlier that. That how strong is the opponent you're facing is a critical part in evaluating the result of the game, especially in college football, where the the very best teams and the very worst teams, even at the top level uh, of FBS, they're very different in terms of, of of skill. Well, I I know enough about the very worst teams in FBS because of the collection of opponents they play. I don't know enough about the FCS level to trust that opponent adjustment would be valuable. And I found that, again, the data set is more, and my processing of of that data is more informed and more accurate when I discard it than when I include it. So Mm -hmm. that's why why I do that. And anyone interested in actually the, the specific ways you define these things and calculate them, if they go to your website, bcftoys.com, they can see those definitions there. And that's also the place where each week during the season, you rank from 1 to 130. All the teams in college football, you end up with a top 10, a top 25, or probably most relevantly now, given the current playoff structure, a top four, because that's the top four get into the college football playoff at the end of the year. And I'm wondering, how have your rankings, the numbers that you end up with at the end of the regular season, how have they compared to what the playoff committee is putting forth? Yeah, the I have mixed feelings about it, to be honest, as I, as I explain this. What, one is I am intuitively interested in having them match reality in, in, at a certain level. I want to be providing some value in a different perspective, but not so much of a different perspective that it looks like Saying nonsense. That right? Buffalo is the number one team in the <laughs> how country. Did you, how did you possibly Central put Michigan, four Mac teams <laughs> into right, the playoffs? Right. So there needs to be a common sense and, and generally speaking, th- that is already in place. I, I, I rarely have results that fly totally out of, out of whack. But my numbers, again, they're describing a very specific opponent-adjusted possession efficiency. At the end of the day, that, that is how I rank teams. 
I have a lot of other ancillary or supporting data that might distribute those teams and rank them differently. And, and you could you could argue that that ranking is a version of the best. These are the best teams. If they faced off and, and played a, ra- a full round robin, they would they should result again in that order of result, right? They the best team would win more often than the second best team, and more often than the third, and, and, and so on. That definition of best is what the playoff committee has been charged with selecting. What I've found in kind of companion research that I've done in my work is that the playoff committee doesn't choose the best teams. They choose a uh, what, I, what I think is more accurately described as a most deserving set of four teams. That's an important distinction because... Certainly in in college football fandom, a team that goes undefeated, even if people doubt their their merits on how they may perform in the playoff, there's a general acknowledgement that that team has earned a position in the playoff. My numbers might, like others, uh, suggest that that team is no better than the 8th best team in the country, or 10th, or possibly even worse than that, and they were fortunate, you know, based on things like we talked about with kickoff returns, let's say, or unpredictable results. I still might argue, again as a fan, that the playoff committee is making a good choice by putting that team in the playoff, but the numbers may not line up. I, I like the validation that there is some... Uh, connection to to the playoff committee's instincts, but I also I, I like it when uh, my numbers might point to something that is a little bit different because it both helps me kind of scrutinize is this work am I getting after something that I might not be able to recognize with my own eyes that prompts more questions and more inquiries, but I'm also sharing information to you know my audience as as, as modest as it may, or large as it may be at different times to also ask those kinds of questions. What are we valuing? What are we looking for the teams that uh, Vegas better might pick as the best four teams in the country because of their instincts, or are we trying to pick teams that are more deserving? Those are those are interesting. They're not global challenges that, that the world needs to face, but they're interesting challenges in, in this uh, sports world that, that they're, they're fun to debate, and yeah. I'm a contributor to that. The last thing I wanted to ask you, and it, it's kind of, I mean, there's part of me that's thinking like, oh, ending on that answer there, because it's a great high-level answer, but there's something that one of the most interesting things I think you've ever done, and I saw you tweeting about this again last month. It's been several years now, but it was something you did for ESPN the magazine about the red zone and speaking of things that Merriam-Webster defines I looked it up the red zone is also in the dictionary and define the way we all broadcasters talk about it understanding it's the tw- the opponent's 20 yard line and in and that's all that's been set up as this measure of offensive efficiency of how successful are you at scoring touchdowns or kicking field goals once you as an office get to that point on the field and I know that you did some work that suggested that maybe the 20-yard line, that isn't the, the line we should be looking at as saying, oh, this is this is where we should reasonably expect you to be able to come away with points. So what did you discover and what was kind of the, the history of the, I mean, was the red zone just chosen kind of arbitrarily? It's like, oh, we'll just look at the 20-yard line. and Yeah, the, re- the research I did, it was somewhat arbitrary. It's, I, it's not some magical part of the field where 
everything changes. It, there, there are reasons why the 20-yard line makes sense or has become commonplace, a commonplace marker. And certainly, uh, and broadcasters and many others have leaned in on it because it's something that's easy to latch onto and became just part of the part of the lore. But, but it wasn't a reference point in all of football's history. It really didn't start until the 1970s or really even the 1980s to catch on as a, as a concept. The reasons why it is at the 20-yard line are somewhat accidental and somewhat they reference the point in the field where the ability to stretch the defense has been eliminated, right? A good example is some of your plays you could run at any point on the field. The, the routes that your receivers may run could be deep routes, whether you're on your own 10, whether you're at your midfield, or even on your opponent's 30-yard line, let's say. But once you get to the 20, part of the playbook yeah. goes away. You can't – the back of the end zone is is too close, and, and the defense, therefore, you're more compressed. You have less room to work, and so you're, essentially your play calling changes. That was one of the things the coaches I talked to talked about as being – the main reason they do uh, pay attention to the red zone. But very few of them in their preparations talked about it as the 20-yard line, as be, as being somehow that, that marker where that begins. Some of them, uh, it was all the way back at the 40-yard line with you know, because of the way they structured their offense. Others, they thought it was much more of a, as you approach the end zone, it becomes incrementally more difficult, which certainly makes a lot of intuitive sense as well. But the 20 as a measuring stick was the point of that article was like the 20 as a measuring stick really should go away as, as part of our lexicon. And we should be much more uh, tuned into that kind of gradual pressure of advancing towards the end zone, altering the way the teams perform and altering the way the teams might prepare. The other part of that article that I talked a bit more was that if we simply change the definition to the 30-yard line, the performance of teams in the new red zone, a 30-yard in, would be much more indicative of their strength than, mm. than the 20 on end. So it, the article really played up that particular uh, angle. The editors at ESPN liked that that piece of it. In fact, they had this great artwork as part of the article where where they had a bunch of players on a field repainting the red zone uh, out to the 30-yard line. But that idea that, that the 30 was just more inf- of an informed uh, position on the field to, to, take, to take the data that occurs from that point in as being replicable. The things that are, uh, happen between the 20 to the, to the end zone aren't as re- replicable. They're, there's a bit more uh, randomness to success or failure in that part of the field than there is when you move it back to the 30. So that was another part of that. And it was, it was, it was really interesting research. I, did, I approached that project not knowing that that was going to be the outcome of it. I, I think when I pitched the idea, it was much more, I'd like to talk to coaches about field position, <laughs> was the pitch, uh, with less of a hook. And the, the red zone idea kind of emerged from that. But yeah, it's is definitely a piece that I really enjoyed doing and, and I reference from time to time uh, still. So yeah. yeah. Brian from O, it has been an education as always. Thank you for <laughs> making time for the show. Uh, I enjoyed it very much. And, and brunch was delicious, Ted. I appreciate <laughs> Glad that to as hear well. It. Glad to hear it. With a Side of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame with support from Soren's Restaurant. Our website is provost.nd.edu slash podcast. <laughs>